are welcoming yet again our guest, Douglas Salvage. Douglas, good evening. How are you doing? Uh, good evening. I'm doing fine. Excellent. Good to hear. So just for the rest of the audience of those who missed the last quite exciting segment, which we had, Dr. Douglas Salvage is a historian at the Stasi Records office in Berlin, Germany. And uh, whilst he works currently in a research project on active measures and propaganda, meaning the Stasi's activities between 1966 and 1989, and you've heard him and me and all of us talk about exactly this many times here, and it's terribly interesting because there's a historic arc and a state of continuity, and this is where we're going to start tonight, Douglas, are we not? Oh, that's correct. <laughs> and the funny thing is that it pertains to Ukraine just as much because the measures they are undertaking, our Russian adversaries, have whilst they have been adapted and amended, and sometimes they look a little bit different, sometimes they look a bit polished, and yes, of course, they're now using different technologies and the internet is a boon for them, but essentially, the stories, the narratives are equally insidious, and the approach is still the same, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I was just thinking about uh, the, well, I basically looked through some of the documents. Well, first, before I start, I have to say that, of course, any views I express are purely my own. They're not the views of my employer, uh, uh, past, present, or future. Uh, but yeah, I was just looking at, uh, I forget it, I think it was like a month after the second, uh, basically, attack of Russia against Ukraine began last year. Uh, they started releasing these documents, the uh, German, the Russian Ministry of Defense, where they had all these leaked documents they put up and said, oh, this proves that uh, Ukraine was developing biological weapons with the assistance of the United, assistance of the United States. And uh, it's just so typical. First of all, the whole theme was the same as former active measures campaigns before they'd said, you know, that the United States developed HIV AIDS, the bioweapon, before they'd done disinformation about how, you know, AIDS was going to spread from basically U.S. bioweapons research in uh, uh, Pakistan to India. They did this in 1983. They've been doing disinformation the past 10 years about so-called uh, bioweapons laboratories across Russia's borders in Georgia and in uh, Moldova and Armenia that were supposedly where the U.S. was assisting them to develop biological weapons and that this test, this testing there could eventually lead to epidemics spreading across the Russian border. So then when they invaded you, well, Ukraine the second time was to the second phase of the invasion last year. Then they started basically returning this propaganda saying, well, one of the reasons we had to invade was because there are these bioweapons laboratories there and they're developing weapons basically to attack Russia. And one of the first things they did when they started occupying different parts of Ukraine is if there was a research facility there that was doing research into infectious diseases that was basically doing research to try to uh, develop, uh, I guess, vaccines against uh, things like COVID or any other sorts of diseases or doing basic research and trying to fight off any sort of uh, bacteria or viruses that were destructive of crops. They would basically put together all these documents and say, oh, this is basically an example of, you know, Ukraine developing bioweapons. And what they did was they did this giant document dump on the Internet, the Russian Ministry of Defense. They said, oh, here's the proof that, you know, there are bioweapons laboratories. And if you go through the documents, you know, probably all of them 
I would assume 99%, maybe even 100% of them were not fakes, which, you know, they also forged documents. But in, I think in most cases, these weren't fake documents. But all they said was basically, we have so many, it was basically from a research facility saying, oh, we have so many vials of this particular virus, and we were doing experiments on it, you know, basically basic scientific research. Or there was an order from, you know, the Ukrainian military or actually from, I think, even from the president's office telling the people, well, you know, destroy any sort of viruses or bacteria that you're working on in terms of research because, well, war is going on. We don't want it getting out of the laboratory if a bomb lands on top of the lab. And so they put this all up and said, well, these are examples of how they're doing bioweapons research. And this reminded me of uh, previous campaigns of active measures, for example, even when they're trying to say the president of uh, West Germany, Heinrich Lübke, right? They, the East German started this campaign saying he was basically a, 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 what, that he was basically a builder of concentration camps. It was this whole disinformation campaign they engaged in, and they flooded out uh, hundreds of documents. Some of them they got out of the Soviet archives about one of the firms that he was working at. And they said, well, here's proof that, you know, Lupka was basically uh, said Baumeister. He was basically this engineer that built concentration camps. And uh, most of the documents are just pretty, you know, uh, documents about this firm he had been working at, nothing about him. They took one document out of this whole file and they forged it and put his name in uh, to try to implicate him in building, you know, uh, a a facility that was supposedly used for uh, uh, base laborers or in this case, probably all star bites or slave laborers in the east or for, you know, POWs where they're supposed to be housed at. And they basically put his name into this document. And again, it was this tactic where they dump hundreds of documents and a few of them are, uh, you know, a couple of them are forged uh, and some of them might even be accurate, but they flood the zone with all of this, you know, information. And the interesting thing is that Heinrich Lübcke had been uh, a member of the Center Party, the Catholic Zentrumspartei before in the 1920s and became utterly, um, shall we say, resigned to his fate in the 1930s and was very, very passive. But the interesting thing is that, of course, he ended up in a completely different environment um, when in during the uh, World War II because um, he <laughs> worked with the engineering company which had to support the architect who built what became um, a research center in Peenemünde, the Heeresversuchsanstalt, HVP, and uh, it's essentially nothing else than the Air Force um, test center at that point in time. That's it. He didn't build any camps. But um, the Soviets did insert exactly that document, which evidently was completely false. Um, Western intelligence knew, but uh, well, some of them were quite silent because they thought it's probably not a bad idea if we just give in on this. And just a few months prior to the end of his uh, term, he then resigned because he was utterly exhausted and felt uh, completely destroyed after having uh, participated in rebuilding Germany after the Second World War. That's how far it can go. 
Yeah, exactly. It could be also that they didn't want to respond to the accusations because that gives the accusations more publicity. Uh, and in fact, the, I think the West German government tried to stall any response just saying, you know, well, this is East German propaganda, which actually it generally was. <laughs> and uh, the strange thing about this is the one forged document that they slept in, or at least the Stasi slipped in. You know, I saw how they planned in one file how they were planning to do this and how they, you know, the original document, there's a copy of it. There was a type version and, you know, using new typewriters from, you know, the late 50s or early 60s, you know, about this is what we want to put in the document. And then there's actually the, a copy of the forged documents in the file that they, and it was basically a Soviet file, right? They'd stick, stuck it in this file. Uh, and for whatever reason, I guess this document wasn't then, didn't come up so much in the West or in, you know, the propaganda. Nobody really paid attention to it. Uh, what happened was Albert Norton, who was sort of in charge of the East German propaganda at the time in the Central Committee, he held a uh, press conference and he had drawings. He said, oh, these are the drawings that basically Lupka did planning this uh, uh, camp for forced laborers, right? He had all these architectural plans from this firm. Uh, one of the, and the thing is, um, they ended up on the copies. They had different, you know, plans uh, from uh, supposedly for this camp. Actually, it wasn't a camp. We don't even know really what it is. Uh, but there was Heinrich Lupka's basically stamp on it. And to make it look better, Norton told the Stasi, well, we need to make sure that the stamp that Heinrich Lupka used, that is clear on all of the documents. So basically, then <laughs> the signature, then this little initials he had were, you know, to make it look the same on all the documents so they could be clearly seen. The Stasi basically copied the documents again with the uh, uh, new and improved signature on them. And of course, uh, in the West, they noticed, well, you know, nobody signs their signature exactly the same more than once. So they saw that, you know, this must be not the original signature. This is a fake. Right. And so it's interesting because the plans themselves weren't fake, whatever they were plans for. Uh but uh, they basically got caught on something that they didn't do. And the actual forgery, one of them, they put in the file. Nobody even paid attention to it. And the interesting thing is that, of course, um, uh, Lübke was uh, once a political prisoner himself, accused by the Nazis right at the beginning because he was politically profiled as a young up-and-coming politician by the Centre Party right in 1933. If I'm not quite mistaken, he then worked in a building society, which is why he ended up in this Heelsesuchstadt, which is why he always had to sign and stamp for uh, building plans of various parts and components. And this is what they made use of. Uh, I think you once mentioned when we talked the first time around that they need a kernel of truth. They need some detail which is correct to then um, embellish it absolutely it into a new narrative and then bring it out right yeah they uh, do this all the time and uh, you know there are different ways they go about doing this like I mentioned you know in the document they forged it and they just added one name <laughs> tried you know uh, snuck uh, Lupka's name in there where it wasn't there before uh, 
the other documents, some of them could be uh, completely accurate documents, but don't really say what they say they say. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, here's this whole, you know, giant file of 100, you know, original documents of evidence. And they did the same, you know, with the so-called bioweapons laboratories, you know, oh, there are all these documents here and, oh, they have dangerous viruses they're working on, you know, they're just basically viruses that, you know, in all countries they're doing scientific research on to try to prevent outbreaks. And, they, you know, they stuff a few things in there. So the question, of course, when I saw this flood of documents in the case of the so-called bio weapons laboratories is, you know, some of these, most of these are probably just things they found and put in there. And then other things they, uh, you know, any, any document could be forged where they just put in a different virus that wasn't there. They just added to the list of, you know, things that were destroyed in the lab. Right. It's interesting that uh, obviously um, we should have picked up on these matters, but we didn't. Why is it that, uh, we always so easily forget. Well, in some cases, we, I guess some of us didn't really ever know. <laughs> so you can't forget something you don't know. Uh, it was funny because uh, the day I was going through, uh, uh, one of the things I'm working on right now is uh, they were doing this disinformation during the Berlin crisis. They were really attacking Alice, Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA at the time. And the East really started, you know, the KGB started a propaganda campaign, their disinformation division. They brought all of their other, you know, fraternal organs on board, including the Stasi. And you know, there was this uh, one document they had uh, that it was a captured German document. Uh, and it was basically Dulles speaking with a Prince von Hohenlohe. And uh, I think it was in February of 1943. And it was Hohenlohe's record of the conversation. And, you know, the document, it turns out, many people thought it was a forgery. Dulles sort of, you know, implied that it was a forgery, but it was probably the real documents, right? It was basically this Prince Hohenlohe reporting back to Walter Schellenberg, who was sort of the Himmler's head for foreign intelligence in the SD and the SS, uh, talking about a conversation with Dulles in February 1943. And Dulles, according to this uh, uh, report from uh, Hohenlohe, had made, you know, certain anti-Jewish comments, had basically said, you know, well, you know, if the Third Reich wants to keep part of Poland, they can, as long as Poland moves to the east and gets its territories back, or, you know, the Munich Agreement isn't that important to him. And, you know, the thing is, later they found in U.S. archives the same document well, you know, this Prince von Hohenlohe apparently was a notorious liar, right? He was sort of reporting back what he thought probably, you know, Schellenberg or maybe Himmler would want to hear, right? So that they would negotiate with the West and get a separate peace to try to basically uh, get the Western allies to make peace with Germany so they could, you know, keep some of their conquests in the East. So it's probably Hohenlohe who was basically forging this but of course this document comes out without any context like you know who is this prince von Hohenlohe you know why is he saying this to Himmler right what's the larger historical context here and you know other historians who basically now have come back to look at it and they say well you know given the context you know Hohenlohe is probably lying because he did that a lot apparently in his reports back uh probably it could be that Dulles might have even said some of these things but he was basically an intelligence officer. He might have been lying 
right, to try to get information out of Hohenlohe about what's going on in sort of the centers of power where he's, because he thinks, you know, maybe Hohenlohe knows what he'll, you know, uh, Himmler and what Schellenberg are thinking. So there are all kinds of reasons why this document, you know, could explain some of these statements in this document that actually have nothing to do with basically saying, you know, what the Soviet bloc propaganda said, oh, this is, you know, clearly Dulles is an anti-Semite. And I mean, one of the remarks in the document is so out of control. I mean, crazy. It basically said that, you know, Dulles said at one point they're thinking about shipping the American Jews to Africa. That's sort of the old Nazi Madagascar plan. Uh, that was clearly something, you know, even if Dulles had been anti-Semitic, I couldn't imagine him saying that, right? But this is old Nazi yeah. propaganda. Hardly. <laughs> Hardly. I mean, people need to understand who, who uh, Alan Dulles was. His job at the OSS was essentially the the, the um, kinetic and active measures yes. uh, of what is at that point in time the the, the, the crucible out of which um, the CIA, as well as a number of other, um, say, components in the national security apparatus uh, come from. The, certain elements of the DIA would not exist if it hadn't been for the, the way the OSS did its business. The CIA would not have been as successful after the war, um, to, the, to the extent that it was, without... Um, well, while Bill Donovan and uh, people like Dulles. I mean, that's just what it is. He had to have discussions with people like Hohenlohe. He had to have discussions with uh, with people who could become double agents or informants and the likes. So people can say whatever they like, but Alan Dulles definitely—that <laughs> was his—that was his business. Right, disinformation, espionage, uh, turning sources, maybe even saying things that he thought Hohenlohe, as probably an anti-Semite himself and Nazi, would like to hear. So it's you know, but of course this was published complete without context. And what I've also found though is that uh, there are actually historians who. You know, they they in a sense cite publications based upon this document, right? They were like as part of this propaganda campaign in uh, 1959, 1960. Uh, you know, the Soviets had sort of parceled out piece by piece. They had said, "Oh, we're citing some documents we have from the Germans." Something that Alan Dulles said, and then some people said, "Oh, we don't believe this." And though, so then uh, this one uh, Soviet journalist from uh, New Times, Neue Zeit, Novaya Vremya. They have this, you know, newspaper that's printed in all these different languages uh, in Moscow. His name was Lev Bezeminsky. Well, according to the Mitrokin archive, he was basically, he had the codename Lvov, and he'd been, Lviv, and, sorry, and he had been working for basically Smirsch, then for, you know, Soviet intelligence right after the war, and then for the KGB, of course, for the first chief director, I assume, for the disinformation division, then at the time that this propaganda came out. And he's the one who sort of published these documents then in Moscow. And then these documents were republished in a publication in Great Britain, which was, you know, supposedly put out by a, a, a renegade labor parliamentarian who uh, later, of course, MI5 said, well, he was basically working for the KGB. Um, 
And then there was a magazine article in the nation, the United States, by you know a normal you know U.S. journalist. Maybe he's a little bit unorthodox, a little bit left, although sometimes he's somewhat conservative. Fred J. Cook, he basically published this article. A whole issue of the nation was devoted to uh, the CIA under Alan Dulles. And he's quoted extensively then from, you know, this uh, report in Great Britain, right, that had come out based on probably what these documents had been put out by Bezeminsky in Moscow. And that's sort of how they, you know, recycle the disinformation. So this sort of normal journalist publishes it in Nation, the Nation, and then Soviet propaganda blitz in India cites uh, Fred J. Cook, the, the article in the Nation, you know, not Bezeminsky in Moscow, and says, oh, well, you know, Fred J. Cook writes this, right? And it's that's and still today, there are even some historians or people who you know write about the CIA, and they'll you know cite these articles. Well, the interesting thing is, of course, that some uh, U.S. magazines, we don't want to go too close to this, have now, of course, lost their, shall we say, Russell-file proponents, so-called historians and the likes who have been always um, <clears throat> Fundenhäufeling uh, through a life uh, in recent decades. Now, Douglas, the interesting thing is that, of course, that... Um, they are using the same technique as you just applied it to um, Alan Dulles. This is a very old school thing. You find some dirt that you project it upon someone. And then, by the way, uh, you could even utilize it for people who work in Ukraine on the side of the righteous, but in an environment which is difficult, whether it's in the weapon system industry, whether it's in the security services, whether it is uh, diplomatic service, and they could be tarnished. Um, by the Russians by just spinning some news and uh, making them look bad, making them look corrupt and trying to move them out of what is essentially public office. Uh, they managed to do so with Mr. Lübcke, um, who was the president of Germany, no less. They managed to tarnish the image of Alan Dulles, um, albeit that they didn't really get to him, but they did manage to tarnish a lot of other people. How would you rate their approach now to what they're doing in Ukraine? Because obviously Ukraine is following up and trying to sort out those who are traitors, uh, those who have collaborated, and those who have just been utterly corrupt and therefore helped the enemy by means of corruption and suppression. But do you see a risk uh, that we will see in as soon as Ukraine wins further, that they'll try to remove more people by tarnishing them? Or are they too weak for that at this moment in time? Well, I think that they are, I mean, when it comes to disinformation, uh, I think Russia is the disinformation superpower. I mean, <laughs> that's the one, I mean, that's one of the things they're really good at is just, you know, putting the lies out there, throwing it up and seeing what sticks. And they're especially good at destroying the reputations of individuals. I mean, it's one thing like, you know, Alan Dulles has a high position in the government. Everybody expects, okay, foreign intelligence services or, you know, certainly the Soviets would attack him or, you know, talking about the U.S. government, the U.S. government developed the AIDS virus. This is harmful propaganda, it turns out, for different reasons. But, you know, probably the people who are going to most believe it don't trust the U.S. government already. But when it comes to individuals, like you mentioned the case of Heinrich Lupka, it can destroy their lives. And 
especially when they aim at people like who are working for NGOs, non-governmental organizations, people who are like human rights activists, people who are just authors, you know, writing about things or journalists, they can really, you know, damage a person, you know, practically destroy their life. Uh, in fact, there's a term for this. It's uh, in the East German Stasi called it Zersetzung. And some of these active measures are basically there to destroy organizations, destroy the reputation, get people fighting with each other, destroying the reputations of individuals. Everybody said that this was something new that came from the Stasi. There's actually a, a Russian term for it that the, the Stasi got it from, the, of course, from the Soviets. I think I forget if it's Razoblichanya. I forget the exact term, but they had been using it before, usually talking about. Uh, disintegrating is one way to translate this as one is disintegration measures to disintegrate organizations in the West or NGOs or people who are, you know, anti-Soviet or anti-Russian. And they started applying these also to individuals, right? And it can really destroy somebody's life. And that is important because there are many people who can't easily defend themselves be them volunteers, be them journalists, be them uh, business people who can't afford to be tarnished easily, or uh, be them um, local officials who are somewhere in between, um, say, the current administration and getting a new function, or, God forbid, people higher up in the administration. These are all key targets for the Russians, some easier, some more difficult, some require a bit more narrative, right? Yes. And of course, part of this is also trying to uh, get into, uh, uh, you know, intelligence agencies so that within the intelligence agencies, they, you know, of course, sometimes there are moles, you know, people who are basically double agents or people inside who are spying for the other side. But one thing, of course, they always try to do is to convince the uh, agency on the other side that basically there is a mole inside of it. And they hope that they'll go on a mole hunt, right, and hunt, try to track down this person in the process, basically, uh, you know, uh, curtail their operations, get them focused on internally and what's going on in the intelligence agency uh, or, you know, uh, yeah, just basically try to paralyze it that way. Uh, and they can do that, of course, with other government agencies or groups. No. From your current research, and you said that you're currently focusing on one matter, what can we learn from the uh, activities of the Stasi and the KGB during those years, specifically in Germany, as to how they are using their capacities now? Well, certainly one thing they do, I mean, uh, they always try to find something and basically to, uh, how should I put this? Uh, one thing they do is they are sort of like, bad amateur historians, right? They try to find out something about a country's past, something that's controversial, where there's debate in the given society, uh, something about, I mean, every every country, every nation has sort of certain aspects in their past that are negative. I mean, if you think about the United States, let's say, certainly slavery, uh, you know, lynchings, certainly uh, the treatment of African-Americans, right? That's something that, of course, Soviet propaganda could pick up on. Sometimes they would just, you know, repeat what was actually going on. Other times they would certainly add their disinformation to it. Uh, and in the case of uh, West Germany, right, after World War II, uh, they were basically trying to portray West Germany as being, uh, okay, 
because there were some former Nazis in different uh, posts in the Federal Republic or people who had high positions in the Third Reich or middle mid-level positions more likely. Uh, or because, you know, there was a new West German army and, of course, they needed officers and they also used some generals who had been in the Wehrmacht in World War II. This offered a perfect target then for, you know, Soviet bloc propaganda, uh, perhaps even to some extent of conviction. But, uh, but if you read the actual documents where they're talking about organizing these campaigns, right, they say, well, you know, there are Nazis in the German government in different places. Well, let's convince the West, you know, their Western allies that basically there's a Nazi camarilla. There's basically this clique of Nazis under Adenauer that are running things in the Federal Republic of Germany. They're trying to get access to nuclear weapons. They're trying to make plans for a new war. And they're trying to spark World War III. Right. So maybe the first thing is true. Well, there's some Nazis in high level positions in Adenauer's government. Right. Probably you shouldn't have been there. But then the next step is to say, oh, and by the way, you know, they're doing what Nazis normally do. They're making plans for an aggressive war. And guess what? It's going to start soon and they could spark it any time. Right. And so that's where the active measures come in is trying to build upon this basic kernel of truth about something out of the history of the given country uh, and saying, you know, well, you know, using it in a way that some people will believe uh, because it's actually based on the given country's history and exaggerating it to the point where, you know, it's weaponized. And the interesting thing being that, of course, the it was the Stasi and uh, which hired some of the worst um, criminals of the Gestapo, the SD and the SS, whether it's Lehrers, Setnik, Hans Sommer, all of them, the Stasi recruited heavily amongst them because they needed their skills, interestingly enough. I mean, Josef Zetnik is the guy who is essentially um, based in Auschwitz. Yeah. And the Stasi happily recruited him to, now it comes, to infiltrate the churches. Yeah. Then they had uh, what's it, Lerets, uh, head of the or uh, subhead of the um, Gestapo in, in Leipzig, uh, very aggressive, um, himself uh, considered to be one of the torturing investigators, and so to say, the, the Holy Roman Inquisition or the Spanish Inquisition of the Gestapo in, in Leipzig, an absolutely terrible individual. And they brought him into the Stasi and to support what's it, peace and socialism. Wonderful. They essentially recruited more SS officers uh, per capita than, well, even the uh, Chileans and Bolivians did, I'm sorry to say. It's astonishing. But of course, they had to project the other, other way around. Yeah, and the KGB did that as well, of course. And what's interesting is uh, then after the 1990s, then a lot of these Stasi officers who were involved in things like disinformation or the Lupka campaign, then they said, well, you know, well, thanks to us, we helped with Alfarbeitung. You know, we helped <laughs> basically get the, you know, documents, the truth out there so that, you know, people could know, you know, all, there were all these terrible Nazis running around and we got, you know, the information out there that otherwise wouldn't have gotten out there. 
But this is also not true because uh, if you look, whenever they're doing these campaigns trying to track down, you know, like even Nazis in East Germany, right, who they might prosecute or do something with, or the Soviets as well, or even the Czech secret services, um, they say before you publish anything, before the archives put any documents out, you need to check with us, you know, the Stasi, the KGB, or Czech state security first because they might have an operational interest in this person, meaning they might want to recruit them for something. They might have already recruited them. They might be working for them. Uh, so there's a lot of things they don't want to just let the information out. They're very selective. And of course, it's the things that make the other side look bad, right? And make the uh, opponents look bad. So how, how and then would you consider this to be a serious risk as well, that Imagine the following case. Ukraine wins the war, pushes Russia out of its borders, consolidates. There is what can only be described as a hot and cold kind of armistice, but the Russians continue to exist and uh, be a threat. Ukraine deters them. But at the same time, the Russian political influence is sufficient. The Russian infiltration is still there to an extent. This would be the perfect time for them to constantly seek to discredit leading members of the armed forces, the security forces, and the political system to ensure that there wouldn't be sufficient continuity, that the heroes of the war of Ukraine should be tarnished, right? This is what we should expect. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, of course, in every war, there are atrocities on both sides, uh, only certain countries that make it a policy to commit atrocities on a regular basis, like Russia does. Uh, but, you know, there are always things that happen during a war that shouldn't have happened. Uh, uh, and, uh, of course, these incidents then can, you know, be used and magnified and put in a, you know, uh, basically put in some sort of uh, uh, magnified and put, if you will, in this sort of a house of mirrors. And then it suddenly oh, you know, there's a lot of other people supposedly involved in some war crime, right, who probably didn't have anything to do with it at all, right? Um, I mean, I mean, if you think about even the Vietnam War, you know, there are probably, there are certainly occasions when, you know, U.S. soldiers, you know, either went crazy or some of them, I don't know, uh, probably, you know, definitely killed civilians that they shouldn't have done. So a lot of them were put on trial for that sort of thing. Others, though, probably got away with it or it was just part of the normal, you know, what happens during a war. Nobody did anything about it. Uh, but that was a very small minority. But still, of course, you hear about that, you know, constantly. And then it becomes, you know, useful for propaganda to say then that, okay, everybody was in Vietnam was somehow involved in war crimes, right? And this is the sort of thing that happens in, you know, the enemy propaganda. And then they try to implicate, right, individuals and in, uh, something that happened where they weren't even involved or even to create atrocities that perhaps didn't even take place. So, yeah, it's a very difficult and... Uh, yeah, very uh, dangerous type of disinformation. Okay, that brings us uh, to the other point. When we uh, spoke about it beforehand, um, Russian disinformation is something which has infiltrated our media and the perception of people because there's so many nuggets. So just highlighted a little earlier about Lukka and Dulles and the likes because these 
little nuggets are still all around and they have not been, shall we say, sufficiently portrayed as that, as narratives. They're still being used 30, 40, 50, 60 years after as quotable evidence. What do we do in our society? How do we highlight them as stumbling stones, so to say, that we can say, guys, that is a lie. Because otherwise, people will always regurgitate and will always use it again and use it for the next conspiracy theory or use it as yet another distant in the past historic evidence of X, Y, Z. Well, unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever be able to get rid of lies. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I do think, though, that uh, I think I've said this before, that we need to be able to train people, first of all, to not believe the first thing you read, right? You read something, then you need to look at other sources. That's what good historians do, is you compare different sources, uh, different accounts, and see if it really all fits together or not. And uh, that's, I think that's one of the first steps. Uh, the second step is then also to teach people, uh, uh, you know, I think in schools, we really need to teach uh, basic logic, right? What is sort of, uh, uh, I mean, there's so many arguments that are made, even I see, especially in conspiracy theories, but also in disinformation, sometimes in the press, even unfortunately sometimes in what should be scholarly works, where there are these different logical errors, like, you know, argumentum ad hominem, where somebody's just attacking another person and it's, you know, not even rational or where, uh, you know, the famous argumentum ad ignorantium, where uh, somebody says the absence of evidence is evidence of absence. I actually got into an argument with a former East German molecular biologist uh, about the AIDS disinformation campaign. He said, well, you know, I didn't find any records in the Stasi archives that said that, you know, Jakob Segel or the Stasi was somehow involved in the disinformation campaign. Therefore, they didn't do anything, right? And there are a couple of problems with this, right? So he's basically saying there's no evidence of it in the archives there, or at least that I found, therefore the Stasi wasn't involved, right? It's another thing to say to, let's say if he says to me, if he wants to argue, okay, I, you don't have enough proof, right? There's something called the burden of proof. Uh, you need to prove your assertions. You need to prove that the Stasi was involved. Uh, that's one thing, but it's another thing to say, you know, well, there are no records there, therefore... Uh, this means that the Stasi wasn't involved, especially since the foreign intelligence branch, the HVA, destroyed 90% of the records, including all of the records with the code name associated with the AIDS disinformation campaign. Uh, this is also uh, incorrect because, uh, you know, there are records in other archives, not in the Stasi archives, that show that the Stasi was involved. And there are also traces, but of course, sometimes you need to be an expert to find these traces, right? So very, uh, you know, things like registrations and card files or whatever. You need to practically be a specialist in the field to know that these traces are there. But still, it goes back to this question of basic logic, argumentum ad ignorantium. There are all kinds of logical failure mistakes that people could be on the lookout for. I, I think those are two things that would really help. Very good points, which brings us to the point that, of course, awareness like uh, about this is very difficult to create. It starts essentially in school, but then again, schools have a hard time finding ways uh, outside of their existing curricula to highlight how to fight disinformation, how to actually 
be critical because critical thinking starts at a very, very early level. And if you don't imbibe it somehow, if you don't learn it by with assistance by someone, if you are not taught that critical thinking is your savior, you will probably not apply it. And this disinformation campaign and these narratives, these active measures pry on and benefit from complacency. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a hard work, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not always easy. You know, we all have limited time, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, I, I think it's important to realize how little we can actually know in a sense, but uh, it's hard to say, oh, you know, I hear something in the news or I hear something uh, online and I'm going to fact check it. You know, there's so much information coming at us, right, constantly that uh, I can, it's certainly not easy, right? Okay, so... When you're done with uh, going through the, uh, say, Stasi archives, which probably will never really happen because it, they are, maybe you should remind people how large the archives are, despite the fact that we lost the majority of the data. <laughs> well, we lost the majority of the data on foreign intelligence. The other divisions of the Stasi, there's still a lot there. And of course, in the other divisions of the Stasi, I sometimes find things, you know, uh, sprinkled throughout there about the foreign intelligence branch. But, um, Basically, I think it's 100 kilometers of files, right? It's just an, an amazing amount of material. And it, of course, it's organized by a secret police, which means, you know, most of the uh, uh, documents are organized by a person's name. And, you know, uh, to do research, I mean, you, you can do some basic research. There are files that are just organized by topic or by division of the Stasi, and each division of the Stasi worked, if you will, on certain topics. So it is possible to do research by topic, but to really uh, drill down and probably to get uh, any sort of information that's more specific, you need to basically have the names of individuals and their dates of birth. Uh, and of course, you know, usually only historians are able to do sort of that deep research given the different uh, levels of access uh, based on, you know, who's applying to use the Stasi records. What do you think the um, Ukrainians will do later? Will they use predominantly um, AI research, uh, data mining tools to go through all the data they can find? You mean from the uh, archives of what's going on now, or do you mean the... Yes, from, from the archives, what, what is going on now? They have already, we've seen the cyber attack. Let me remind people of that, that the Ukrainian, um, say, security service and armed forces managed to create essentially a Potemkin Ukraine, where the Russians thought they had control over most of the civil infrastructure could just turn it off and they couldn't thought <laughs> it. They bribed people uh, who would then do their bidding and they didn't. They thought that they had managed to infiltrate um, the control and monitoring systems, the scatter systems of a number of power plants, and they hadn't. So that has worked, but by that means, the Ukrainians have taken in a vast amount of data. Now, some of that will probably, in terms of protecting um, processes and procedures and measures and capabilities, they will probably hide it a bit. But on the other hand, a lot of the data about people, the collaborant, um, a lot of the data about officials who may have been ambiguous, 
that will come out. Will the Ukrainians, how should they, given your experience in researching this now, how should they deal with that data? How can they harness it, harvest it, dissect it? What's the best way to do it? Well, I think that they certainly should have uh, protections in place, right? Because there are some people who are probably, you know, of course, you're dealing with personal data. Uh, you need to be able to differentiate and determine uh, if a person is like working for a foreign intelligence service or who is working for uh, who's, you know, been proven to somehow be, be involved with, uh, let's say, uh, I would say with the Russians or, you know, in the case of the Stasi, it was who was basically working as an employee or who was working as an agent for the Stasi. Under the Stasi Records Act, it's possible to see their files. But in seeing their files, of course, the data of people who, let's say, who were their victims, right, the, that's usually blackened out, at least for, you know, most research purposes. So I think that there has to be some sort of, you know, guardrails in place before you even really uh, open up the archives. But given the vast amount of data, and that's a problem Uh, actually, with all archives nowadays, if you just think about, you know, the United States and probably most of the records there are already electronic. I mean, emails, uh, I, you know, they're probably also printed documents. There's a lot of things that are just electronic now. Uh, certainly in the future, I think pretty much all archives will probably have to have uh, make use of data mining or something, you know, to basically make these records accessible electronically because most of the records themselves are electronic, too. So... Uh, that will certainly be a challenge. It's a huge challenge ahead. I mean, then again, first, you have to win the existential war in order to have the luxury of that challenge. But on the other hand, of course, it's something which already is ongoing because some of that data is already out there. Right. Well, I certainly think in the case of Russia, uh, to the extent that uh, uh people wanted to democratize, certainly keeping the KGB files closed was a big mistake, right? So everybody was afraid that there would be, you know, probably fights or bloodletting practically when people found out who had been spying on them, who, you know, whose neighbor had been spying upon whom. They were afraid of that in, in East Germany, too, when they, you know, gave access to the Stasi records. It didn't happen in East Germany or Eastern Germany. Uh, it generally wasn't a problem. Uh, but in the case of, you know, uh, the Soviet Union and Russia, I think uh, that was a big mistake not dealing with the past. And, of course, some of the people who came to power now are the, you know, KGB officers, the people who are involved in these uh, uh, areas. And I think it would have done a lot of good if people knew, for example, if Putin's KGB file had been out there as full KGB file. Or, you know, I think that uh, at least people would have had more knowledge and perhaps they would have acted differently or resisted more or, you know, there would have been other alternatives that could have been followed. But unfortunately, they didn't open up their secret police files. Very good point. Douglas, what are your favorite three? Let's take the favorite uh, three favorite active measures undertaken by the Stasi and the KGB in their past, the things which stand out, apart from what we discussed about AIDS and the, the biolabs and the, uh, all these kind of things, but there, there are so many of them. And some of them, are, uh, they sound hilarious, but they are insidious. They sound innocuous, but they have hit hard. Some of them are really insanely well-planned, go completely wrong, and they still hit some people hard. What are your favorites? 
Oh boy, that's a, <laughs> that's a hard question. It's hard to think of them as being favorites, too. <laughs> so from, from a purely scientific or academic historian perspective, if you look at it, how important they were, what happened, or the things which are just so shocking that people should really know. Well, I mean, I, I, for me, of course, the AIDS disinformation campaign, that was the one that really got me involved in all of this. I think that was uh, definitely one of the ones that uh, was most effective and is still you know, affecting us today. Uh, it was sort of the basis of a lot of uh, memes that they're still using, a lot of conspiracy theories and disinformation they're still spreading today. So I think it has to be definitely in the top three. Um, Another one I would say is uh, this campaign, Who's Who in the CIA by Julius Mader. They often had these campaigns where they would list the names of alleged CIA officers. And basically, uh, if you go through the Stasi files, uh, <laughs> I remember finding one document where it's talking about uh, the sources. Actually, I don't know if Julius Mader actually wrote anything in the book. Maybe he wrote an introduction to it. I don't know. But it's basically a list of names of people who supposedly worked for the CIA. And there's this one Stasi document where it basically says, well, you know, some of these names, uh, we don't know where the Soviet friends got them from. Some of them just seem to be from the phone book out in uh, Langley, Virginia, or out in suburban Virginia. They just put names in there. We don't really know if they're CIA officers or not, but, uh, you know, their names are in there, right? Uh, uh, I remember when I, a few years after I started working at the uh, Stasi Records Archive, I got a phone call or actually an email from a uh, former officer of the U.S. Information Agency, the USIA, and he said, he asked me for my help. Uh, this often happens when, you know, Americans who don't speak German and they're not sure about this, you know, Stasi Records Archive, and they see, oh, there's an American working there. I heard there's an American working there that I, you know, get uh, contacted by them. And this former USAIA officer said, you know, I was listed in who's who in the CIA. I never worked for the CIA. I worked for the U.S. Information Agency. Uh, do you have any information there about me? They said they didn't find anything. And I basically told him, well, if they said they didn't find anything here, uh, that means that probably there isn't anything here. Uh, but where did you work at? And he said, well, he had worked in different countries. And he mentioned that he had been working in Prague. I said, well, you need to apply to the Czech, basically, Stasi archives to see if they have a file on you. And then like uh, six months later, he got back to me, he said, oh, thank you for the tip. Actually, they had a big file on me in the <laughs> uh, Czech State Security Archive. And apparently they're the ones who submitted his name right to the East Germans to be published in Who's Who and the CIA. So um, definitely, um, yeah, that's, uh, I think, one of the big covert operations. And, of course, they kept building upon it, doing variations upon it. At one point, I think it was the Czech state security did who's who in Radio Free Europe, uh, which tried to do the same thing that, you know, who's who in the CIA had done. And uh, certainly that was a typical, that's sort of your probably the most common active measures were where they were trying to expose the alleged CIA officers around the world. Um, and, and shortly after the initial release, a number of uh, parties who had been named in it were found dead in South America. So this was uh, quite a commensurate and insidious and also dangerous release. Right. And I would say also uh, their use of Phil Agee, right, who was the CIA defector that was certainly... 
up in the top of their uh, uh, active measures. Uh, according to the Mitrokins, you know, Mitrokins knows the Mitrokin archive. Uh, he had been uh, basically recruited by the KGB and also by Cuban state security. Yeah, after he had defected, after he had had all his run-ins with the CIA. Yeah, and I, he certainly the covert action information bulletin. I mean, the Matroka record suggests that, uh, you know, the other people involved with publishing it didn't know that there was this connection between Agi and the KGB or Agi and Cuban state security. Uh, but certainly that was one of the big, uh, they, you know, would submit information, especially the names of spies to it and, you know, uh, alleged spies or alleged CIA officers and, they would also publish other articles about topics like, well, like, uh, you know, was HIV AIDS could be a bioweapon, right? It's that sort of articles. That's sort of what they spent their, uh, some of the other articles in there were really classics of Soviet disinformation. We could go through the neutron bomb and, or my, my favorite little operation, because it, it sounds so small, but it's so important at that time, Operation Neptune. Uh, with that little Chernobyl, the lake in the Czech Republic, where they supposedly found uh, um, a chest of documents and uh, some gold. It's, it's stunning stuff. It, it, the great lengths to which uh, KGB and, uh, in this case, and the um, Czech state security went in order to, uh, say, create fake Nazi documents, then to you know, discredit Western politicians thereafter. That's right. That was another case of them doing sort of the fake Nazi documents. And one aspect of this, of course, is that the KGB, uh, somewhat late, uh, not according to the plan, but they somewhat late sent them a whole pile of Nazi era documents from all kinds of things, right, on all kinds of different topics. And uh, they also put Actually, the Czech state security, uh, you know, Ladislav Bittman writes about this, right? And he said they didn't even know if some of the KGB documents had been forged or not. <laughs> uh, a lot of them were probably just, you know, stray documents that they had lying about. And then, of course, there were some forged documents that were put in there by Czech state security as well. And then they were put into this chest, waterproof chest, and thrown in the middle of the, what, Tuplitz, say in German, it's called, I think... Uh, uh, in uh, uh, Czechoslovakia. And then, uh, you know, some divers went down and discovered, you know, looking supposedly for Nazi gold, I think it was, or other Nazi artifacts. And they found, oh, there are these boxes, crates here, and oh, they're full of documents, right? And uh, the Czech state security then used that for all kinds of different uh, active measures, right? The documents that were inside. And, uh, for example, they, they had some documents in there about... Um, Italy and, you know, Nazi occupation of Italy, you know, talking about how they're trying to, you know, revise the borders at the time or trying to take parts of Italy away for Austria or actually Austria was then part of the Third Reich. There was some talk about that amongst the Nazis. And of course, then the Czechs used that for propaganda uh, publications saying, see, West Germany, you know, we know, again, they, you know, created basically fake neo-Nazis who are trying to retake uh, parts of uh, South Ty uh, South Tyrolia from Italy, right? That was another active measure. They said, see, here's sort of the background of this. And, you know, they could threaten Italy any time to try to take your territory back. 
and they're doing that. And, and they targeted, they targeted, they, they targeted essentially the reconciliation after the war between the, the people of Südtirol and or Alto Adige with the Italian state in a peaceful manner after two heavy-duty wars in less than 50 years. Exactly, and they tried to use it then for their own propaganda, saying, see, uh, the government in West Germany doesn't want to recognize that the Munich Agreement was invalid from the very beginning, and that shows that they want to basically retake you know, the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia, and guess what, Italy, they could do the same to use, right? So there are these uh, Czech historians who are traveling to Italy, uh, publishing in Italian about all of this, and they get nice introductions, oftentimes from Italian communists from their books about, you know, uh, you know, how terrible the Nazis were, how, what terrible things they did in Italy, and what it means when they try to revise your borders again, right? And of course, this is very up to date, because of course, West Germany allegedly is trying to do this too. Well, well, Douglas, um, one more thing, I, I, I have to go back to it, because it took such a long time. But I think one of the most successful active measures is still the insertion of uh, Günther Guillaume into the German government as a continuity of a number of other agents on extremely high levels. Whilst he and his wife were exposed, the others were not until much later. And Marcus Wolf, even in his case, uh, in, in his indictment for treason in uh, 1993, could not be convinced or pressed to relinquish the data, albeit that we found a little bit later and uh, we found a few IMs, but we never found a few people, uh, the few people who all were engaged in this uh, operation to challenge uh, Rainer Barzel's constructive vote of no confidence, because that is probably the most insane version as to how German governments have been defeated, quite literally. Well, yes, I would say certainly in the case, it's interesting with Guillaume, in terms of the intelligence he sent back, uh, his intelligence was very poor, poorly rated. He didn't send that much back. But of course, probably Guillaume was there, uh, not just as a sleeper agent, but also for active measures, right? And of course, we don't have the instructions to Guillaume from his control officer, so we really don't know uh, what he is doing. I, we can imagine he is trying to influence Brandt's polit uh, politics in a direction to reach an accommodation with East Germany on the best possible terms for East Germany. That would be my assumption. But of course, we don't have the documents that you know state that in black and white. Um, and also, we don't uh, know necessarily about all the KGB spies that were <laughs> also in the West German government. Uh, an interesting aspect of this, of course, is that when the KGB tended to recruit uh, uh, spies in West Germany, they usually did it under the false flag of the Stasi. <laughs> so somebody would think that they're actually working for the Stasi, but actually they were working for the KGB. So you have this strange situation after 1990 where some of these uh, People who had been spying, they thought for the Stasi, then their control officers, usually an East German, says, oh, by the way, all these years you've been working for the KGB, uh, do you still want to keep working for them and delivering information? And they say, well, okay. And so uh, only then do they learn that they had been working for the KGB all along. The other cases were when somebody was arrested. Uh, sometimes somebody would be arrested for spying for the Stasi, and then at Stasi headquarters, you see, you know, strange entries like in card files or documents where they write, "This person was arrested for spying for the Stasi. He doesn't work for us." 
exclamation point. Oh, okay, he works for the friends, meaning the Soviets, right? They recruit him under the false flag of the Stasi. I just had to look again at the picture of uh, Agent Pont. The fact that the guy was so publicly available and easily visible and still got away with it. Philip Agee is really an utter, utter despicable, treacherous bastard. Well, to learn everything about Philip Agee, we need to have access to the uh, uh, Cuban Ministry of the Interior files because I think that they did a lot of work with him as well. Um, well, in fact, I'm certain they did a lot of work with him as well. Um, but if, in case you know anybody who's interested in doing uh, research on Cuba, I think that certainly the Stasi files have a lot of uh, materials on cooperation with Cuba, and that's not really been... Uh, published enough, right? I, I can't do everything myself, but if uh, anybody's interested in the history of Cuban state security or wants to do, uh, especially historians want to publish on that, uh, certainly there's a lot of material available. We should definitely go for that. I can see that uh, from our audience, the questions are piling in by now, and Boyar has his hand up. Douglas, please, let, let's go to our chaps. Boyar, please. Thank you, Axel. You're very welcome. Yes. Yeah, great. Yeah, um, the, a very fascinating talk. Um, I was wondering, have you registered any change of narratives coming from the Russians since they are no longer uh, bound by I ideology? Uh, you know, they <laughs> a go-to has always been the threat of you know the uh, nu nuclear narratives uh, or narratives about uh, you know geo labs and so forth. But now, lately, they have been, found, been fond of using uh, hot-button issues that are um, concerning the stuff that can maybe regarded as political correctness. And this type of stuff, I could hardly see them talk about as a communist regime. Uh, do you see any change of tactics coming from, uh, from the FSB, former KGB? Good question. I, I certainly see a change of emphasis and that there's a lot more uh, under the Soviet times. Of course, they tended to like to support usually the left in the West. Um, there were exceptions, of course, to any force that, for example, wanted to help break up NATO, who was nationalistic or whatever. If it was on the right, they would support that as well. For example, they thought uh, the Gaulists in France, uh, anything that they did that was considered anti-American or anti-NATO, they would try to encourage them to do that or try to propag propagandize that. Uh, I only started to see the beginnings, though, of them, for example, uh, supporting in effect, the extreme right. Uh, this is starting in the 1980s where they were trying to support groups in the West that at the time they called it ethno-nationalism, right? Where there are nationalists who are saying, well, we want you know, independence from the globalizers. I guess they didn't call them globalizers back then, but basically from this American dominated world order. So they were supporting people like I found a... And uh, West German, who was uh, basically often wrote things uh, for the Stasi attacking Radio Free Europe uh, using legal arguments, who had been a former, uh, basically been on the Strasser wing of the uh, NSDAP. Later, he was in he was in basically in the SD the whole time. Later, he was forcibly, somewhat forcibly, brought into the SS during World War II. 
And after the war, he was one of these sort of wheeler dealers between East and West, trying to break the trade embargo, trying to uh, uh, get, uh, you know, make profits from uh, smuggling things into the Eastern Bloc. And he used to publish like these newsletters about East-West trade. That was how he made his living. And he basically was more aligned with the Republicano. Later when he published his memoirs, uh, it was basically for this press associated with the Republicano party in uh, West Germany. But he was very much an ethno-nationalist on the right. But he apparently got along uh, well with the Stasi officers who were controlling him. They liked his arguments about, you know, against uh, Radio Free Europe, against sort of uh, freedom of information, saying, you know, well, every nation needs to be able to control what information's uh, flowing through it. Uh, or there are other cases where, for example, uh, in a Czech document, uh, when they're talking with the HVA, uh, I think it was uh, Marcus Wolf even suggested they had uh, helped to support uh, the, under the table. They provided actually some financing to the NPD, right? The Nazis, the NPD, back in uh, 1969. So the NPD would get into the Bundestag because that might provide the margin of victory for a coalition between SPD and FDP, right? So there are a lot of, once in a while, they would engage in these active measures that supported the far right. They would do things like try to get the protocols of the elders of Zion published and distributed in the Middle East. That was especially the KGB and to some extent states, Czech state security was involved in that. But uh, not for, afraid, not afraid of anti-Semitism. No, no, not at all, not at all. Of course, they would say it's anti-Zionism, but you know how that is. But uh, they they did all these things during the Cold War. But now it's like with a vengeance, right? Because now it doesn't matter if it's right or left, right or center. But more, you know, certainly Putin's regime uh, portrays itself as a right-wing regime. Although some people on the left, like, you know, let's say Sarah Wagenknecht thinks that, you know, they should be allowed to do whatever they want to do or whatever Putin wants to do. They're not really leftists anymore, but for whatever reason, there's still parties on the left out of tradition, out of anti-Americanism that still support, you know, Russia. And certainly they use and manipulate that as much as they can. Jenna. Yeah, thank you very much, Axel. And uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Douglas. Uh, this is extremely Interesting. And I have a question, uh, basically a bit echoing what uh, Axel already asked you, but I had a feeling uh, last uh, year and a half that we were really quite naive in our societies and we kind of sleepwalked uh, into uh, the situation. And now I see that we are really flooded by propaganda, disinformation and these uh, active measures. So I wanted to ask you about countermeasures. So when I was uh, looking up some stuff uh, of what you were talking about, I found that, for example, in the U.S., there used to be a uh, group uh, that was called Active Measures Working Group. And basically what I could understand from um, what I read about them was that they were really creating a lot of awareness But unfortunately, this group uh, finished uh, in the 90s, where we kind of naively thought that it's no needed anymore. So are there any similar initiatives or what should we try to push for in our communities and with our politicians? Could you 
uh, could you let us know, please? Thank you. <laughs> That's a very good point and a very good question. Yes, there was this active measures working group in the 1980s under the Reagan administration. I think they continued a little bit into the 1990s. And their focus was on Soviet bloc active measures. Sometimes they just said Soviet active measures. Uh, and their goal was to basically publicize right, what was going on in terms of this uh, covert propaganda, what the major themes were. And in that sense, uh, they were hoping, first of all, to inform the public so they know when they heard something where somebody said, OK, you know, AIDS was created at Fort Detrick, they'd say, OK, that's Soviet disinformation. That's something that they're always spreading. Uh, and the other uh goal they had was basically to put out there, look at how the Soviets are doing disinformation all the time, just pumping all of these lies out there. Um, uh, it, it was also a way to discredit, right, the Soviet Union it's, uh, and its covert operations and discredit, you know, the Soviet government, which I think was also very effective. And unfortunately, of course, this uh, stopped at some point, uh, uh, and uh, the Biden administration did try to get an initiative off the ground, uh, basically to uh, debunk disinformation or try to have some sort of uh, authority to, to do this. But they made a mistake in how they went about it because they said that this authority was supposed to also debunk domestic disinformation, like, you know, conspiracy theories about COVID, which, of course, I think is a worthy goal. But when you start doing that, then it's like, oh, you're attacking the press. Are you attacking you know, bloggers? Are you just attacking certain you know, political parties that like to spread this particular thesis. And of course, then it had to be, I think it was shut down. Uh, it would have been better to focus basically on the foreign disinformation, to focus on what Russia is doing or other countries like Iran and China are doing in terms of disinformation, you know, to bring back something like the Active Measures Working Group, probably something that would even have to be larger than that, uh, a larger initiative, given how much disinformation is out there and how many different, you know, countries, enemy powers, if you will, like China, Russia and Iran are spreading this type of disinformation. Uh, and it should basically focus on foreign disinformation. And I think if you focus on the foreign disinformation, a lot of the domestic right, conspiracy theories and disinformation, uh, they often connect up to this foreign disinformation or the foreign, you know, like the Russians like to use uh, COVID conspiracy theories from the United States and their disinformation campaigns. And then indirectly, right, you're also then basically putting out there, well, this is disinformation that's being spread. And that would also, in a sense, debunk some of the domestic actors involved in this. Thank you very much. All right. Seems we have another question from an alert listener. Up, Kyle Air, please. You have a question for Doug. Hi, Doug. My question is related more to um, the physical archive and access to materials. Um, you mentioned that um, some documents weren't released after the fall of the Soviet Union. And I was wondering if you could provide an overview of what the accessibility to um, information, like physical information, is currently. And, and, like, what is the overall, like, health of archives in that aspect? Like, are there initiatives to digitize um, uh, documents or um, is there audiovisual stuff, photographs? Um, I think that would be really awesome if you could provide some information on that. Thank you. Wow. Well, there's lots of archives, is all I can say. Um, 
in terms of access, um, it's um, pretty much, you know, researchers doing, you know, scholarly research from universities, not just historians, but political scientists, sociologists, you know, people who are, uh, you know, academics. Uh, certainly, it's no problem for them to get access to the archives that are open, right? I think that's the first point to make. Uh, in many parts of Europe, and not uh, just dealing with former communist era files, it can be more difficult for private individuals, right, who are just sort of like going out on their own, uh, sometimes even for journalists, but generally journalists can also get access to materials, maybe not as much as some, you know, scholars are able to get access but journalists tend to be able to get access. But, you know, if a private individual just decides, oh, I want to write a book about topic X, it's not like in the United States, anybody can go to the National Archives and use the records there. It's not a problem. And most European countries, they have, you know, restrictions or, you know, of different types, depending on the archive, who's allowed to get in the door. So this is just, it's, it's been that way for decades. It's nothing new with the communist era records, but that's just, you know, a general... Uh, thing in archives in Europe. Um, the second thing is, of course, it depends on the country and, you know, what's available. So, for example, in the case of the Stasi records, uh, they're different based on the Stasi Records Act. They're different types of research. Basically, uh, scholars attached to university or who are, you know, attached to scholarly institutions they have the best level of access. Generally, they're able to access everything. But of course, there are rules about how they're able, whether they're able to use the information dealing with private individuals. Uh, the next level down is for journalists. They're able to get access to you know, documents in general. But when it comes to the names of individuals, unless they were you know, working for the state security, and that's basically proven by the files, uh, usually the names are blackened out for them. And so the third level uh, is then people who were victims of the regime, of the East German regime, and they want to see their own Stasi files. And of course, they're allowed to have their complete files given to them, whatever records there are. You know, it's just a few documents. They're allowed to receive copies of them. But if the names of third individuals are named, unless they were working for the state security, those names are blackened out. And that's basically to protect people's privacy rights, right? It could be that uh, the person who's spying on you is also spying on other people, and they send back a report and they name these other people, tell something about their private lives, you know, sometimes even things about their sex lives or whatever. And so you can understand why, you know, you don't want just basically people, anybody be able to come in and get that information, right? That's a special problem with the secret police files. So that sort of explains it in the case of the Stasi Records Agency. Uh, in the case of, let's say, the Polish or the Czech secret police archives, uh, they are less restrictive about these things. But of course, even there, uh, you know, you can't just go out and print everybody's private information. Then you can be sued for, you know, different things, right? Or you can get into legal trouble for other things. Uh, there, the access is, in some respects, easier to get in the archives. Uh, their archives are much uh, are becoming more organized. Uh, certainly, the Stasi Records archives started in 1991, so you know most of the materials have been gone through. There's still the materials they're going through, you know, to give access to. 
Uh, so it's, uh, you know, at least there's more materials that you can potentially get access to. In terms of digitalization, that's a slow moving process, especially in Europe, I think, compared to the United States. But even the United States seems to be having some problems with that as well with archival materials. Uh, in the case of the Stasi Records archive, we have a so-called uh, media take where there's also, you know, copies of some documents, uh, photographs. Uh, videos and others, you know, also uh, uh, we've been putting up also um, recordings, right, from the state security. Uh, so there are materials being put up there as well. But of course, it takes a long time given the mass of materials and then also the fact that you have to filter them based on, you know, personal data protection laws. So that, you know, that makes things take longer. Oh, yeah. Do you want to follow up? Hello. My question is uh, is regarding uh, local politics versus uh, national politics. Um, is a way is a way to counter a foreign intelligence uh, willingness to do harm against your information climate, call it what you want. Is a way to counter that uh, keeping your politics more local. By that I mean or I assume that that demands much more resources on um, on an intelligence agency to uh, try to uh, um, disrupt your politics because it de demands uh, a much bigger knowledge and more resources. Yeah, that's my question. Thank you. Well, that's a that's a difficult question. Um, I certainly, I mean, in terms, I think in a federal system, it's uh, you definitely then have more targets and it's much harder to do. Uh, perhaps though with the internet and new <laughs> electronic technologies, it's not as difficult as in the past. And, uh, you know, uh, if you can mess up the elections just in one state of the United States, right, uh, basically somehow compromise the vote counting process, then it can ruin the entire national election. So that's sort of the flip side of that is that, you know, that if you can get in in one place, uh, even in a local area and somehow uh, infiltrate there, you can mess things up for the entire country. So uh, it can go both ways, I suppose. Absolutely. Now, Douglas, one, one question came up yet again. How many... <laughs> This comes back to the archive. Comes question comes from an alert listener. How many people actually have sought access to this vast one hundred kilometer long um, library of uh, Stasi documentation? How many people have asked and tried to find out who pried on them, who informed on them, who had relations, or who had their own files? <sighs> Well, actually, I'm usually bad at remembering statistics, but there are actually statistics online from the archive about how many applications uh, they get each year. And of course, like I said, there are different categories of applications use the Stasi files. Um, but now, for example, still today, the wait time is can be up to two years. That shows how many people are still wanting to gain access to their files or now the files of their parents. Uh, so it's it, it's been, you know, hundreds of thousands, I'm certain, have wanted to get access to their to files. So the desire for information, for transparency, uh, even for closure, is definitely there. 
And that is just essentially only the information of, of course, a very long-standing repressive government and uh, um, one which documented meticulously. It seems the Russians are not documenting as well, are they? Um, <laughs> what, what you mean in terms of their secret police or in terms of they, allowing they seem people to be access... burning and throwing things away more effectively? Let's put it this way. <laughs> well, actually, we don't really know. Uh, uh, there are cases where you know there are reports about oh, they're you know burning files or whatever. Uh, they certainly tried to burn a lot of their files that they had in uh, Eastern Germany before they left. Um, but of course, you don't know how many copies they have the, of the same thing. Uh, you know, the HVA was pretty successful. The foreign intelligence branch of the Stasi, like I said, they destroyed 90% of their records. But, you know, I'm still able to track down some things they did based on materials that they didn't destroy the 10%. They didn't destroy things in other divisions of the Stasi or in card files that they didn't really think about or, you know, in other countries like, you know, the Czech Republic or Bulgaria, there are documents there from talks with the Stasi and, you know, the foreign intelligence that says what they were doing. So I'm not so sure in the case of Russia. I mean, I, I can mention the case, for example, they said that, you know, we only have limited records from the Nazi era. And then suddenly after the collapse of communism, they said, oh, by the way, we have this uh, special secret archive. And they had, you know, like thousands of files that they, you know, pilfered from Nazi Germany, from Nazi era files. You know, they had like, you know, the jaw of Adolf Hitler somewhere in a file filing cabinet. They denied, you know, uh, uh, actually this guy I was talking about, Bezeminsky, had published an article in 1968. I think it was a book about yeah. the death of Hitler and basically saying, oh, you know, there's no remains left. It was totally destroyed or whatever. And of course, then they find his, you know, jawbone later in the Soviet archives. And, and Bezeminsky, sure. I guess, gets to write some books after 1989 about these things. So that's why, you know, there's the one side where it's sort of like, oh, uh, yeah, they're busy destroying things. But then there's the other side, like, you know, well, nobody will ever force us to, you know, look at these things or nobody will really ever look at them or they're not that important. And, you know, the past is gone and, you know, we'll just uh, stick it away. Right. That's the interesting thing that they, they actually um, managed to hide so much more and because they never really had any momentum to declare. There was no democratic revolution. There was no, there was no movement to declare all of this. Very little civic engagement. Russia simply has not produced any relevant civic engagement in that regard at all. You didn't see hundreds of thousands of people storming Dzerzhinsky uh, Square's uh, buildings and trying to find out what on earth was going on. None of this happened. No, unfortunately. Apathy and complacency ruled. But then again, this is what you create over hundreds of years with suppression, terror, and uh, say what the uh, what one would have called decimation in the bad old days, killing every tenth. But there you go. Douglas, thank you so much. This was tremendous, very compact, very concise. Lots and lots of positive feedback. We need to do this again. We need to swing through the archives and uh, try to learn from this. This is uh, very, very helpful, and thank you for taking the time yet again. Well, thank you for having me on.
Absolutely. So we should plan when we do this again in October and uh, we will be delighted to hear from you and uh, do us a favor and we will do you a solid. If you have any new articles or things coming out, we'll be glad to uh, highlight this and to make sure that people get to it. So everyone who doesn't follow uh, our friend Douglas quite yet, uh, you should try to have a little look. See, please follow Matt, D-E-S-E-L-V, D-E, for, I presume in this case, it's it's not Douglas, it's Germany, right? At right, D-E and Selv, and you will find him there and what he tweets, if he tweets, and uh, I could definitely highlight to you, you should really go after what he is writing about in, in regard to the totalitarian regime, which uh, subdued... Uh, a large part of the German population and what we can learn from it and how Ukraine can benefit from that knowledge. Thank you very much, Douglas. Well, thank you. Absolutely stunning. Thank you very much.